So good to see you all again. Um, I don't know about you, but I came this morning at 8.30, and I have to say, I've, I've said this to a couple of people, when events say the event starts at 9, but you can come at 8.30, everybody comes at 9. But y'all were here at 8.30. One, because you have amazing food in the back. Okay, I don't think I've ever been at a women's event that has such good food. So um, cheers to the people who put that together, because um, it makes all the difference. And y'all, I've had some bad conference food. I've had some bad <laughs> conference food, and this is good conference food. So um, I was so blessed to see so many people here um, this morning for fellowship and for um, food together, and I am excited about the day ahead. Um, I don't know about you, but um, diving into the Word with a group of women, there's very few things that get me as excited as doing that. So um, I'm excited about where we're headed today. Um, I kind of gave us a roadmap last night for where we're going, but let me kind of refresh our memory on what we're looking at doing today. Um, we'll be doing three main teaching sessions. Um, last night we did the first of, so the fourth one um, was last night, Why Should We Be Students of the Word? And we saw the call from the Psalms to be people who are rooted in the word, um, not because we want to please God, not because we want to measure up to this standard and meet the righteous requirements of the law, because Christ has done that on our behalf, but because we want to become like God in his character. We want to become like Christ, and the invitation is extended to us to do that as we study God's word. Um, so last night we saw why should we be students of the word, and this morning we're going to talk about how do we do that, what's next, what practical steps can we take to be students of the word. So this first workshop we're going to go through things like how do I identify who the author of a passage is, how do I know who this was originally written to, and how does that help me understand what is being said there. Um, one of the questions that a lot of people have is how do I know if something has cultural context around it or if it's meant to be an eternal um, commandment. How do we know these things? Because I don't know about you, if you've ever heard passages that people say, well, if you understand that in its original context, it means this, and you're like, how am I supposed to know? <laughs> Who's going to tell me how I understand eternal promises and eternal um, commands versus those that have some cultural context around them? So we're going to talk about all of those things this morning in our first workshop, and then later on, we're going to talk about why should we teach the Bible? What is the call in God's word? to be people who pass the word of God on to others, who share the good news of the gospel with other people. And then we're going to do a workshop and close our time together with how do we do that? What are some practical ways? If you want to be a teacher of the word, if you want to lead a Bible study, if you want to eventually do stuff like this and teach um, groups of people from the word of God, how can you start putting together a lesson? But more basic than that, how do I share the word of God with my kids? How do I simplify in a way that doesn't water it down, but also makes it approachable for them? Um, how do I do that with my neighbor? And how do I do that with my friends? And even those in my Bible study, how do I be a person who uses the scriptures? Now that I can study them, how do I use them in a way that is glorifying to God and helps build the kingdom of God? Um, so that's where we're going. We're going to dive into workshop one. Um, but I want to remind us of why we want to be students of the word. So I want to ask you to turn once again to Psalm 1. If you don't mind turning in your Bibles there. Psalm chapter 1. I want to read this again for us as sort of our reminder of the invitation that we have in God's word to be students of the word. And if I can do this, what, can I ask you to stand for the reading of God's word? I don't always do this, but there is something sacred about us all uh, holding God's word or an iPhone, um, holding God's word and acknowledging that with reverence we come to God's word to be students of it. We don't come to lord over God's word. We don't come to bring our own agendas or to bring our own presuppositions to the text. We come to be students of it because he is our king. He is our God. He is our 
Savior. And so we want to show reverence. And um, you guys were just asked to sit down, and then I asked you to stand up. You're going to soon think that we're Presbyterian or something around here. But um, let's stand as we read God's word um, this morning. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." And while you're holding your Bibles, ladies, I just want to encourage you. Um, I heard a um, speaker, a Bible teacher, Jill Briscoe. I don't know how many of you are familiar with her. She's a British Bible teacher who I love. And um, she recently taught, I think actually about a year and a half ago now, she recently taught, and she's um, in her 70s, and she held up her Bible, and she said, I want to tell you from this side of my life journey with Christ that it is all true. I want to tell you that all of this, everything in God's Word, it's all true. And so as you hold your Bible this morning, sit in the relief that it is all the true Word of God. It's not just good news, but it is true good news. And it's good news for you today as you seek to be a student of the Word. So as you stand, let's pray um, for our time together. Lord, we love you, and we are grateful for your Word, and we are grateful that you have called us to be women rooted in the scriptures. And so we ask now that you would come and meet us here as we seek to be better students of your word, wherever we are on this paradigm um, of learning to study your word, wherever we are, whether we're just getting started and we're saying, man, this is just overwhelming. I um, have never read the text without a devotional, without some sort of um, study to lead me along, or whether we're saying, I've done inductive for years, Lord, wherever we are on this paradigm, would you take us a step further? Would you help us to take your hand and accept your invitation to be students of your word and to dive deeply into the scriptures this morning? Um, Lord, I pray for women that may be overwhelmed or intimidated. I pray that you would um, meet them in any anxiety that they fear, any um, fear that they have that they won't measure up. Lord, remind us, remind all of us of the truth of your word that we don't come to measure up, but we come in the grace of Christ um, to become more like you. And so we're accepting your invitation this morning to study your word. And I pray for the women who are really eager, who have said, yes, I've wanted to study this. I've wanted to learn this for a long time. Um, I pray that you would bless their enthusiasm, bless their eagerness, bless their excitement, Lord, and make it fruitful um, for us as we study your word together and as we study what it means to study your word together. So bless our time, Lord. Um, We pray it all in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Ladies, go ahead and have a seat. This morning, we are going to be looking at, whoops, we're going to look at how to study the Bible. Um, And I recently um, have, I've dived in, dove in. I, in this last year, did dive in to um, local church ministry with my husband. As we're planting a church, we're in the process actually right now of planting a church in Greenville, North Carolina. It's been a super fun process for us. We've been really blessed by um, the people God has put in our path uh, by seeing other churches that are doing great gospel-centered ministry there. We've been so encouraged as the Lord has directed our steps there and as he's guided um, us in that direction, and we're so thrilled every time we meet this little, these little baby believers that have come to know the Lord in the last couple of months even, 
and we are just so thrilled as they ask good questions of the text and as they um, even just ask practicals of what it looks like to walk with Christ. I had a girl recently who lives in Greenville but works in Kinston, which is where I live, and that's how I met her. And she was a big part of how the Lord sort of opened our eyes to the need in Greenville. And she um, had met, I had met her through a business meeting, and we had several business meetings, and she worked at a local restaurant in Austin. She had, you know, met Austin and I there together um, through that position. And one day after a business meeting, she came to me and she said, okay, you just have to tell me, like, what's different about y'all? Like, you just have to tell me something's different. She was like, we're the same age, but my life is a wreck, and your life is all together. And I was like, you do not know me very well. Um, but I was basically able to say, it's all Jesus. Like, it's all Jesus. Jesus is the one who is doing this. Jesus is the one who uh, makes all the difference. Austin and I, our marriage does not work without Jesus. Our life and our financial decisions and um, living, you know, in our community, none of this works without Jesus. And so I was able to share the gospel with her, and she was like, not having it. Do not, not interested in hearing any more about this Jesus mumbo-jumbo. And so I was like, okay. Um, but I just prayed that the Lord would plant a seed in her heart. And about three months later, um, she came back to me and she said, okay, I'm not saying that I want to, but if I did want to start talking to God, what would I say? And so we got to have this very sweet conversation about what, what are some of the first things we pray to God? What are the, some of the first things that we say to God when we start a relationship with him? And her questions were things like, can I pray in my head or does it have to be out loud? These were like the very fundamentals of what does it mean to walk with God? She has no church background. And so it was such a blessing to me to hear these kind of questions because I, we can be so saturated in our church culture that we forget that people have these very basic questions about faith. They have very basic fundamental questions about what does it look like to talk to God? Can he hear my thoughts? Can he, does he know the desires of my heart? Does he know my needs? And so we got to have that conversation. And as she has started to grow in her faith, one thing I wanted to do in this really busy season of life where Austin and I aren't relocated in Greenville yet, that's where she lives. Her and I aren't able to meet on a regular basis because of our work schedules. I wanted to give her some resources to help her start studying the word, but I wanted it to be very accessible to her. And as I started looking around at what resources I could pass on to her, I have to admit, gals, when we look at some of the women's ministry world, um, we find ourselves sometimes wanting. We find ourselves sometimes um, looking at things that have a lot of content, but not a lot of biblical sustenance, not a lot of substance to them. And especially for somebody who was very new to the faith, what I didn't want her to do is get totally off track and totally immersed in this, you know what, you can do it. <laughs> and you know what, you are stronger than you think. And just throw a little Jesus in there and sort of pat it um, with all of these, all of this Christian language that ultimately is teaching truth in ourselves, um, teaching that we have enough in and of ourselves to survive, and that we can, if we just have enough faith, or if we just believe enough, or if we just work hard enough that we'll be able to overcome. Or, you know, it's sort of like these Pinterest-worthy sayings that don't actually hold any water. And so as I started looking at these things, I realized that it was sort of like um, pockets, okay? Now bear with me. I wore um, a romper last night, and I'm wearing these pants today. And one of my favorite things is, is that they have good pockets. Do you see this? Like my whole hand fits in them. <laughs> And in my romper last night, my whole hand, like my wrists fit in my pocket. And 
Somewhere along the line, I got used to wearing these when I taught or when I was in business meetings or whatever it was, and I would always put my phone, my whole phone fits in my pocket. And I love that I can literally carry my phone in my pocket. And when I got so comfortable with that, I got so used to it, that one day I put on my jeans and I went to put my phone in my pocket. And you know what happens, right? Like the bottom tenth of my phone fit in my pocket. So we have back pockets and then we have these little baby front pockets that are really no good. I don't know what you would put, like a stick of gum, like a single piece of gum, maybe one bobby pin, some (laughs) male along the line, no offense sound booth because you're doing great, but some male along the line was like, let's make some jeans. And you know what girls want is a bobby pin because my husband finds them all over the house all the time. He's like, you have so many of these. And I'm like, actually, I thought I was almost out because... I just picked up more of the story, and he's like, I vacuumed up 48 bobby pins this week. But somebody was like, do you know what women need is a little baby pocket for a single bobby pin? And so we get so used to having these little pockets that when we can actually put our whole hands in our pockets, we're like, this is magic. This is amazing. And do you know what? You know who never thinks about putting their phone and their wallet and their keys in their pocket is men. Men never have to stop and think, do you think I can fit these very bare necessities for going out? in my pants? Like, do I think I can actually fit these things in my, on my being, on my person? No, they have big pockets. They've got deep pockets. But we have gotten so used to having these little baby pockets that now I, ha- I walk around with a duffel bag that I've justified as a purse. Like, I literally travel with almost luggage, okay? Because I've got all of this stuff that I now carry, and I carry it totally separate from my person. But sometimes when we look at our biblical resources, we have gotten used to having really shallow things that actually don't aid us in our walks with the Lord. We have gotten so accustomed to dealing with such little biblical truth and so much sugary substitute that we, when we find a good resource, when we find a Bible study that actually gives us a word, we're like, oh my gosh, I actually can fit my hands in these. I actually have something for my life. We have gotten so used to dealing with so little that when we find something that gets us into the word, we're amazed and surprised. And that was what I was finding with my friend Hannah. I couldn't find good stuff that just got her in the word because we've gotten so used to finding these things that pad the truth of God's word and they give us these buffers that talk all about what it means to live a Christian life and live with integrity. We talk all about Jesus, but we're not getting into the word. And so as we open our time together today, I want us to adjust our expectations. We do not need to have low expectations of the resources that are put out for women studying the Bible. We do not need to have low expectations. We need to have high expectations that we're going to be able to fit our whole hands in our pockets, that we're going to be able to fit our phone and our keys in our pocket. We want to be so comfortable expecting so much substance from the tools that we use to study, and from our own study in God's word. We want to raise our expectations so that we come across other resources and we're like, this just doesn't satisfy me anymore. This just doesn't quench my thirst for getting in God's word because we don't want it buffered by all of these other things. So this morning, we're going to look at what it would look like to just study the word on its own. How do we just study it without other resources? And we're going to talk about a little bit why, why that's so important. Why should we just study the Bible just on its own, just without other resources? Why should we do that? We're going to look at that. Um, But this morning, we're going to talk about how to take some of those first steps into being women who are rooted in the Word, um, because that's going to be our first step towards having high expectations 
of our time in the Word and high expectations of the resources that teach us from the Word of God. So you have a set of workshop materials in front of you. And if you will open to them, we're in workshop one. And the first thing we're going to be looking at is this um, first category of comprehension. This is our first question that we are going to ask of the text is, what does the text say? This is where we want to start whenever we approach Bible study. And we're going to do a little bit of a refresher for those of you that are kind of looking at your Bible and you're like, this thing is kind of a beast. I don't know if you've ever picked up a study Bible and realized, I don't even know what half of these little numbers and letters mean. There's so much um, stuff in there other than just the text. There's so much stuff that sometimes we can be overwhelmed. And so let's, before we dive into this question, let's talk for just a brief second about the anatomy of a Bible. What are we looking at when we look at a Bible? So in the very front of your Bible, you're going to have your table of contents and your appendix. So in the very front of your Bible, if ever the pastor tells you, we're going to turn to Habakkuk, and everybody's like, yeah, I know who Habakkuk is. And they're like sort of looking, and you're like just flipping, flipping, flipping. Your table of contents is going to tell you what page all the books of the Bible start on. There's 66 books in the Bible, and we confirm that all of those are the Word of God for the people of God. And so whenever you get lost in the Bible, don't be embarrassed. Just turn to your table of contents and find where that book starts, and in time, you're going to know exactly where it is. As you study a book of the Bible, it's going to camp itself in your memory. I just taught um, a Bible study on the book of Lamentations. It was a real upper. And um, before that, honestly, I was always like, it's near the poetical books in the Old Testament. But now that I've studied it, I know exactly where it is because I got up and familiar with it. I got really close and personal with it. And so as you study, you're going to get more familiar with it. Just don't be embarrassed if you need to look up where a book in the Bible is. Because this Bible is for us. It's not meant to be held at a distance and say, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just going to fake it on Sunday mornings until, you know, I kind of know my way around. No, get up close and personal with it. Um, And then you're going to have an index. So if you flip to the back of your Bible, you're very likely, there are some Bibles that don't have one, you're going to find a list of words or of theological terms. So they're alphabetically ordered. And so if you are thinking, what does the Bible say about atonement? Or what does the Bible say about the name for God, Abba? You're going to be able to turn to that list, look at that word, and it's going to give you references where that word is used throughout the Old and New Testament. It's a really great resource so that if you come upon a word in the text that you think, I actually don't know what this means or I don't know what it means in context, look it up in your appendix. Look it up in the um, back of your Bible and figure out where else is this used because it's going to help fill out your understanding of what that verse is saying in context. And then lastly, you're gonna, if you have a study Bible, you're going to find before any book of the Bible, you're going to find some commentary, maybe an introduction on who the author is. In the middle of the text, you're going to find some commentary down below. So if it says something about the angels, you're going to see that bolded below in an explanation from some kind of um, biblical literacy professor or commentator. You're going to see some commentary down below about what that means and how we understand it. Study Bibles are so great. They're a great resource. But I do want to encourage us, let's get familiar with the text first. The Bible is God's word. The commentary are the words of man. They're helpful words of man. That doesn't mean, that's not to say anything bad about them, but we need the life-giving words of God. And we want to be people who can study it without commentary. We want to be people who study it first and then go to commentary as support and as we explore some of our questions. But we want to study the word of God first. So use your study Bibles, but use the Word of God first. Use that as a backup and as a second step in understanding God's Word. 
So let's talk about comprehension, asking what does the text say? The first thing that we want to, oops, sorry, I went too fast. The first question that we want to ask, and you're going to see this in your workshop materials, okay? So take a look there. The first question we want to ask when we ask ourselves, what does the text say, is who is the author? Who is the author? The author, knowing who the author of a particular text is going to help us understand the context of the original writing. So when we come to a text, we want to understand that before we ask ourselves a question, what does it mean and what does it mean for me, we want to ask ourselves, what does it say? The word of God was written for us, but it wasn't for us first. And so we want to learn to understand what is it saying? What is it saying in its original context? What is it saying to the original audience? We want to understand what it's saying before we say, what does it mean? And then we can ask ourselves, what does it mean for me in application? We want to honor this progression because this is how we honor the word of God is saying, first, what does it say? And the first question we want to ask ourselves is, who is the author? So knowing who the author is is going to tell us the situation of the writing. So if we're in the New Testament and we're reading one of the letters, um, let's say uh, the book of Ephesians, for example, which is written by Paul, it's going to tell us something about that book, something about who is writing it. Knowing that Paul writes the book of Philippians while he's in prison tells us something about the book of Philippians, doesn't it? So when Paul says, you know, remember my chains, he says that the book of, in the book of Philippians, he says that at the end of the book of Colossians, he says, remember my chains. Well, when we understand that that is the context of the author, it makes Paul's words in Philippians seem a little less trite when he says, rejoice. And I'm telling you again, rejoice. Those words have a little bit of some, some different weight when we understand that he is in prison for the cause of Christ. So knowing who the author is is going to help us understand the original context of the writing. And when we identify the author, thankfully, this is, pretty easy to identify. It's kind of an easy first win. Most often it is announced in the first couple of verses, especially in the New Testament. We're going to see the author identify themselves, especially in the letters. We're going to see the author say, hey, it's me. I'm writing this letter to these people. We want to understand who the author is, and thankfully that's pretty easy to do. So throughout our time this morning, we're going to workshop um, all of the things that we're talking about, identifying the author. We're going to talk about identifying the audience. We're going to workshop all of these in 1 Peter 1. So if you have your Bible, open it, but you also have a printout there so that you can mark it up. We can get up close and personal with it. So go ahead and pull that out, and we are going to workshop this in 1 Peter chapter 1. Can I ask somebody to read this for us, these few verses, just verses 1 and 2 for us? Thank you. So the author is identified here. They jump onto the scene and they say, hey, it's me, I wrote this. So who wrote the book of 1 Peter? It's not a trick question. I will ask a couple trick questions, but this is not one of them. Who wrote it? Peter. Peter wrote it. And it helps us understand the situation of the book. As we ask ourselves, what does it say? I want to comprehend what the scriptures are saying. What does it say? It helps us understand the context of this original writing. It helps us understand the original context in which this letter was written. So Peter is writing this book, but it tells us one other thing about him, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. So this gives us a little more information about Peter. Throughout the book, he's going to identify himself in different ways. Throughout the book, we're going to see the audience identified in different ways. But specifically, Peter jumps onto the scene and he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
So I don't know about you, but I have blazed past this sentence in just about every New Testament book that I've read. You know, Peter, an apostle of Christ, Paul, an apostle of Christ, Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ. But when we think about what it means to be an apostle in the early church, this was specifically somebody who had seen Jesus and who had witnessed his miracles and was entrusted with spreading the gospel. So somebody who had seen Christ and learned from Christ. So we have the original um, 12 apostles, and then we have Paul who met Christ on the road to Damascus. And so when Peter is saying, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is announcing himself as somebody who has been with Jesus and been entrusted to pass on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. So this isn't something to blaze past. This isn't something to skim over. Peter is identifying himself first and foremost, not as their teacher, not as their elder, not as their authority, but as somebody who has been with Jesus. That is the author of this book. And that tells us a little bit of something about his heart as he moves through the text. As we read from him, he's not coming to the text in the posture that we talked about avoiding. He's not coming to lord it over them. He's coming as an apostle as one who has been with Christ, who has been entrusted with this message. He's coming as a person who has been with Jesus. So knowing who the author is helps us understand the original context. Now, I will tell you, we don't know the author of every book, and that is okay. God has given us all the information in his word that we need to know. Everything that is pertinent to our faith and growth in Christ is in the word of God. And so for books that we don't know who it was written by, that's okay. The Lord saw it, did not see it fit to give us that information. So it doesn't mean that we don't know something about the Word of God if we don't know who the author is. But when we do, it's helpful information to give us clues into how the book was written and the original context that it was written in. So the next thing that we want to ask ourselves is, who is the audience? Who is the audience? We want to ask ourselves about the original recipients of this specific book of the Bible. So if it's a book written in the Old Testament, was it written to the people of Israel? Was it written specifically to kings? Was it written for those in exile? Was it written to the New Testament believers? Was it written to the early church? Was it written for Gentiles or was it written for Jewish converts to Christianity? Who was the original audience of this and what was going on with them? It's going to tell us a lot about the context in which this book was written. For example, when we come into Philippians, I used this one before, Paul is in prison and he writes to this church and he tells them to take heart and he says, let nobody deceive you. Don't be deceived. And if we look closely at the text, you see that there are people from inside the church and outside the church that are seeking to undo the work of Jesus Christ in their Christian community. And so when we understand that, If we get to chapter 3 in the book of Philippians and we understand, oh, there are those inside the church preaching Christ in vain and there's those outside of the church preaching Christ from rivalry, when we get to there and we read the whole book again, that context brings the entire book to life for us. When Paul talks about his chains and saying, it's better for me to depart and be with Christ, but for your sake, it's better for me to remain. When we understand the situation of of his original audience, the situation of the church in Philippi, we understand, oh, that's why Paul is saying these things. That's why it's better for him to stay, because they need a shepherd. They need somebody to walk them through this difficult season where there's attacks from within and attacks from without. So understanding the situation of the original audience is going to tell us a whole bunch about why this book is being written and the original context in which it was written. 
It's going to help us bring, it's going to bring us to that question, the next question. Right now we're asking, what does it say? It's going to bring us to the next question of what does it mean? So first we want to ask this question, who is the original audience? It's going to tell us about the historic setting of the original book. So what's the situation of the original readers? The cultural setting, is there important cultural background that's pertinent here? We look at Luke, writing the Gospel of Luke. Um, and he writes it as a doctor, so it's very prolific. It's very advanced in language. And he was writing to those who did not know Christ, but were probably in a different class than those who are reading the book of Mark. It's a different perspective. And so when we understand who the author is, it helps us understand the context um, of the original audience. And so then it also gives us perspective. Knowing the original audience gives us perspective on the passage. It helps us ask the question, how will this audience hear these words? Into what situation are they being written? Is the original audience Jewish and they have extensive religious understanding? Or are they Gentiles who have been ostracized from the things of faith? What is their original situation so that we can understand what the original context of this passage is to help us answer the question, what does the text say? And so here, we're going to do this again. Can I ask somebody else to read these two verses again for us, nice, loud, and clear? And we're going to identify something about the original audience. Thank you. Very, very helpful. So what do we learn about the original audience? So Peter has identified himself as the author, and he says, I'm writing to fill in the blank. What do we learn about the original audience? Just shout it out. They're in exile. That's great. What do we know about those exiles? They're elect exiles. So they're not just exiles, but they're elect. Okay, so we'll look at what that means in a minute. What else do we know? They're dispersed, right? So they're um, elect exiles of some dispersion. And I'll tell you, the capital D here gives us a little bit of a clue that it wasn't just... Um, a general dispersion, but there was a dispersion. This is pointing to a historic event instead of saying like war in lowercase w, which just means kind of general ongoing war. If we capitalize it, we're talking about like World War I or World War II. We're talking about a very specific thing. So there was a very specific dispersion that has affected these elect exiles. What else do we know about them? We know their location. So they're in these areas. So first, we know that they're elect exiles of the dispersion, and you can see these brackets. They're in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay, so we'll look at what these mean in a second, but right now we're just identifying what we know about the original audience. So I'm going to recap this really quickly before we move on to the next stage. What I do when I want to study a new passage, I will print it out just like I have here for you, just like you have the first Peter text, and I will first identify the author, and I'll write down anything I know about the author. I'll write, well, what does it mean to be an apostle? I'll write, well, this is Peter. What else do I know about Peter? Da, da, da. I'll write those in the margin of my text, and then I'll identify the audience. And here what we would do before we do any interpretation, before we ask what it means, before we do anything else, we're just going to identify these are the things we know. They are elect. They are exiles. They're re the result of a dispersion, probably a specific one. And they're located in Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Pontus, and Galatia. So we identify the author, we identify the audience, and the next thing that we want to do is ask, my, ask ourselves, are there any words that we don't understand? Is there anything here that I don't get? Is there anything that's catching me off guard? Sort of like we said last night when we looked at the passage 
in first or in Psalm one. I almost said first Psalm. Um, in Psalm one, we come to the word about prosperity, and some of us might just go, hmm, blaze past it because I'm not quite sure what it means here. I don't know exactly how to understand this. And so what we don't, what we want to do when we come across those words, we want to lean in. Don't lean away. God's word is never going to let you down. It is never going to disappoint you. It is never going to be scary as you lean into it. We can come to passages about um, women in scriptures and we think, I don't want to lean into that. I don't want to. What if I find out something that I don't want to know? It is always the right posture to lean into the word of God. Study it more. It's going to become more endeared to you. It's going to become more transformative for you. Lean into the difficult things of God's word. And so when we come to words we don't know, we don't want to go, okay, just flip past it. Just going to move on really quickly, and maybe I'll understand something later on. We want to lean into words we don't know. And here's my encouragement. It is okay not to know what words mean. Even just in basic definition, if there are English words that you just think, I've heard that word, but I don't know what it means. That is okay. It's much better to ask the question than to skip past it and lose the richness of God's word. So when we come to words we don't understand, there are two resources that I always keep with me. I always keep a dictionary with me. I have a dictionary app on my phone, and I will literally just look up words to help myself understand. So for example, when I read this passage, I go, I don't exactly know what exiles mean. I don't don't exactly know what that means, so I'm going to look it up in my dictionary app just to help myself fill out my understanding of what that means, and I can apply it to the text. The other thing that I keep with me is a thesaurus. So specifically, there are two kinds of words that we very often don't understand when we come to the text. There's words that we just don't know what they mean. So for example, exiles, I might go, I'm not entirely sure what that means. But then there are other words that we use all the time that sort of lose their meaning. So I don't know about in your communities, but in our, in the church planting world, the word gospel is used all the time. So we use gospel to talk about the good news of Jesus, which is its most true and purest definition, but we also talk about gospel communities. We have gospel giving. We have gospel growth. We have gospel friendships. We have gospel everything. So all of a sudden, you're like, wait a second, what is the gospel again? Like, I'm not entirely sure what it means. Words like grace and mercy and hope can also be like this because we talk about them all the time that they sort of lose their meaning. We use them so broadly that we forget there's a preciseness here that we want to get. One example of this is The two words, grace and mercy, we use them almost interchangeably, don't we? We talk about the mercy of God, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, but it's easy for us to forget that they are very distinct in definition. If we look them up, grace is the free gift of God that we don't deserve, and mercy is us not getting the punishment we do deserve. They're very distinct in definition. The good gift of God that I don't deserve, and mercy is not getting the punishment I do deserve. And so when we see them in the text, we don't want to just wash across both of them and use them interchangeably. No, we want to understand specifically what they mean. So whether we come across a word that we think, I just am not familiar with this word and I need to look up a definition, or we come across a word that we're so familiar with that we sort of have lost touch with its actual definition, we want to look both of those up and not blaze past them. So use a dictionary app and then use a thesaurus. Um, A thesaurus is helpful when you come across words like gospel or words like grace or words like mercy, where you think, I've used this so much, I'm not entirely sure what it means. It helps us fill it out. Mercy is going to come up with other words similar to not receiving the punishment you deserve. Grace is going to come up with words similar to um, the good gift of God that we don't deserve. 
One thing I want to clarify, as helpful as a thesaurus is, you may have heard other Bible teachers say another way that this can be said in the text. So, for example, last night in Psalm 1, I said another word for blessed is happy. That's actually a different translation value for the Hebrew word for blessed there. But when we use a thesaurus, that's not what we're doing. We want to make sure that those two things are distinct. We're looking at other English words related to the English translation. What we're not saying is another word that could be used here is this. Does that make sense? We want to make sure that those are distinct because we're not, thesauruses are obviously not going back to the original languages. Um, but a thesaurus can be helpful in helping you flesh out what does this concept mean? What does the word exiles mean? I can look it up in my dictionary and I can look it up in my thesaurus and help myself better understand what they mean. Then, once you've used a dictionary or footnotes and you've looked up words that you don't understand, you can use your cross-references and footnotes. I find these so helpful. Cross-references are the little letters that tell us other passages that deal with the same concept or words. So if you're looking at your Bible, um, and I would encourage you to look there now, look at 1 Peter, you might see, if you're using the ESV like I am, you might see... Um, right after exiles of, you might see a little letter. And if you click on that in your app or if you look at the the, um, center portion between the two columns of your Bible, you're going to see a cross-reference to James 1.1. You're going to see cross-references where this same people group is addressed in James chapter 1. Isn't that exciting to think about? There are other places in the Bible that, use the sa- that address the same people, that use the same concepts. It's one of those ways that the Word of God is woven together as one whole tapestry. God's telling his big story of the Bible throughout all of these books. And it's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what the whole story of the Bible is teaching us. And so cross-references are going to tell us other places in the Bible where these things are used, where the same concept comes up. And then footnotes are the little numbers that give us clarification on what we're dealing with. So this is going to tell us where... Maybe a different translation could be used, a different word could be used, or it'll tell us in the book of, um, in Second Peter, we use this translation value instead of this one. Here you're going to see exiles, but here you're going to see um, refugees or something like that. You're going to see the different translation values that could be used. So don't shy away from using those letters and numbers that litter your text, those letters and numbers that you see in there. Don't just go, well, I don't know what that is. Move past it. Use those because that is, those are super helpful tools for you to help answer the question, what is the text saying? And so as we look at any words we don't understand, what are words in this text that you think those might be helpful to look up? What are some of them? Foreknowledge. Yeah, what, what does that even mean? It's not a, it feels like old English or something. It feels very far away from us. What else? Sanctification. One of those big theological words. Elect, yes, yes. What else? Apostle, yes. Sanctification. Sprinkling with blood is kind of like, that's kind of weird language. (laughs) Makes me feel like we're in the Old Testament or something, so I might want to look that concept up. And also, I would want to look up what is the dispersion and where are these locations? What does that mean? I don't actually know. I don't know if you know, but I don't know. So we're going to look at those. We're going to look at these words really quickly. So if I was was studying this text and I had my printout like you have here, double space so I can make notes and stuff, I'm going to start by looking up the word elect. And if we look it up in a dictionary, it means somebody who is chosen beforehand. 
somebody who is known beforehand. And if we look this up in, if we read theological commentary on this, we talk about, um, people will talk about passages that deal with predestination. We talk about all these different things that have to do with the elect in the text. But that's actually not what we're dealing with here. We're not talking about specifically those who have been um, elected for salvation, but because it's a lowercase e, we see that these are people who God has chosen for some reason. And as we look at these other words, we're going to see what that choose, chosen reason is. Okay, so these people have been chosen. God foreign, he knew about them. Um, he knew that whatever was coming was going to happen. He, they have been chosen for a specific purpose. And then when we look at the word exiles, we're going to see in our dictionaries that it, another word that can be used here is refugees, excuse me, in our thesaurus. Um, if we look it up in the thesaurus, we're going to see that another word that could be used here is refugees. I think this word actually really helps us capture what this word means because in our political climate, we're talking about refugees. We're talking about these things in modern day, um, in our modern world, where we're not talking about exiles necessarily. We don't have people that are being governmentally exiled in the same way that we're dealing with in the text. So I think the word refugees gives us a great word picture. It pulls it into our reality, into our immediate, um, into the foreground of our understanding. And the exiles are those who have been kicked out of their country by the government officials for some kind of persecution for some kind of reason, they've been forced to leave their country, okay? So these are refugees. They're on the run. They're not in their home, and they have left their homeland for some reason. When we look up the word dispersion, we understand that this just means scattering. It just means to scatter. If you disperse something, if, you, if somebody said, hey, disperse the chairs throughout the sanctuary, you would scatter them throughout. This was an event that happened historically where these believers were kicked out of their country and they were scattered. Can you imagine just like a farmer throwing seed? They were just all over. And they have been scattered specifically to these areas. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And if you want to put brackets around that, all of, that, all of those places, all of those cities are modern-day Turkey. So now we have a concept of where these people are. We know that this place that they are is not their homeland, but we knew that God chose them for this. God chose in his good and kind and generous character, God chose them to be exiles, to be refugees, kicked out of their country, running for their lives into another area that is not their home, and they are in an area which is now known as modern-day Turkey. Okay, so we know something about the original audience. Just by looking up those words, we know something about the original audience. And the text doesn't stop there. It says, they have been scattered, they are elect exiles, scattered in these areas <clears throat> according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. This word foreknowledge, when we look it up in our dictionary, just means to know beforehand, to know in advance of the thing happening. So it harkens back, if you want to draw an arrow from the word foreknowledge to elect, it ties those words together, it links them together to teach us that God knew that this was going to happen beforehand, and yet he saw it fit to allow them to be exiled, for, to allow them to be on the run, to allow them to be scattered throughout what we know as modern-day Turkey. So according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and why? In the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is a word you cannot look up in your dictionary. So the best way to look this up is to use a theological reference guide. There are some really good theological pocket guides, that sort of thing. But when we talk about sanctification in the church, we are talking about the process by which God makes us more like him. 
It's the process of being made holy. So when we talk about justification, that is me being made right before God. That's what we were talking about last night in the text. We're not studying the, the word of God to be justified before God. Christ has done that on our behalf. But the process of sanctification is the process by which the Spirit molds us into the image of God. He makes us more holy because he is holy. So we're being sanctified. And so something about their situation, something about these exiles who have been scattered, these believers who love the Lord, but God, for some reason, saw it fit to scatter them throughout modern-day Turkey as refugees in their land, it has something to do with them being made more like Christ. It has something to do with them being made holy and conformed into the image of God. So that's what we know about our author. That's what we know about our audience. And this is how we ask ourselves questions like, what does the passage say? What does it say? Before we come to it with, what does it mean? We want to ask ourselves, what does it say first? And this is how we do it. We ask, who is the author? Who is the audience? And are there any words or phrases that I don't understand? So with that in mind, we've done that for the first two verses here. We're going to move on to our next question. But friends, these are sort of the more boring steps, if you will. These are the steps that we're going to be so tempted to skip. But it's really important that we don't ask ourselves, what does it mean? Or what does it mean for me? Which is the posture that it's so easy to come to the text with. It's so easy to open our Bibles and say, okay, Lord, what do you have for me this morning? But we want to come and say, Lord, what does your word say? What have you said in your word? And then we can ask, what does it mean? And then we can ask, what does it mean for me in application? So first we're asking, what does it say? And now we're going to move on to the next step. After comprehension, we're going to talk about interpretation. What does this passage mean? And for me, this is the fun part. I love, because it, it's like we have all these nuggets on our page. We have all these little bullet points, this factual information. Now we get to start putting it together like a puzzle and saying, what does it mean all together? What do we understand about our author and our audience and about this text? What does it mean when we put it all together? So when we ask ourselves, what is this passage about? What does this passage mean? The first thing we want to do is look for repeated words or phrases. <clears throat> repeated words or phrases. My biggest recommendation to you as you study a new passage is to read the text and then to read it again and then to read it again and then to read it again. I like to read a passage that I'm trying to study five times before I make any notes, before I take any next steps of interpretation. Read it to yourself. Read it out loud. You read it differently when you read it out loud and you'll hear things and all of us are different learners. So read it. Um, one of the things that I love on the ESV Bible app is that you can take out verse numbers and you can take out chapter headings and stuff like that. You can pare it down in your settings just to have the text. You can have like chapter numbers only. And so if I'm reading a passage, I'll read it, I'll read it with the verse numbers and then I'll take those off and I'll read it without. And you notice different things. There are certain things like, things you never notice like where certain sentences start and end. I, my husband was just preaching through Colossians at our church and he was teaching the end of chapter three and he realized that chapter 4, verse 1, is actually the end of the sentence in chapter 3. And he was like, why did they start a new chapter here? It's the, like, they have like six words left to the end of the sentence, but they chopped it off and made it in chapter 4. 
So when you read it without those things, all of a sudden you start noticing where those natural divisions are, not just where other people have come in and put chapters and numbers divided there. So read your text, read it over and over, and the Lord blesses the reading of his word. This is one thing we know from his word and one thing that we trust. Read the passage multiple times straight through. And then ask yourself this. Take a step back after you've read it. Take a step back and ask yourself, what impression do I get that this passage is about? What do I think it's about? When I read it over and over, if I had to summarize what do I think this is about, what would I say? And then ask yourselves, what key words or phrases told me this? Because when we get an impression that the text is about something, we want to find evidence, right? We don't want to read this passage and say, oh, um, the first Peter, it's about how we should treat refugees in America today. Well, if we're not finding evidence for what that's about in the text, we're probably wrong, right? If you can't find words or phrases that point to what you think the passage is about, we're probably getting it wrong. But if we can start circling words, we're going to go, oh, this is what the passage is about. And we start linking all of these words together, and it builds out the theme of the passage that we're studying. So read it multiple times then ask yourself what impression that do you get the passages about, and then ask yourselves what words or phrases gave me this impression. So I'm going to read this passage for us, and I want you to listen, and actually as you listen, look at your page. So both, we're going to do auditory practice and visual practice. So listen and trace with me in your passage, and as I read, circle or underline words that kind of build out this original theme, this theme that we think we're going to build throughout the text, Okay. What do we think the passage is about? Okay, let's identify words um, that might identify that. We're going to read it through twice. So the first time, listen and think, what do I think this passage is about? And then the second time, we'll read it again, and we can start underlining and marking, okay? So 1 Peter 1, 1 through 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So if we were to stop here and say, kind of what impression do we get this passage is about? What would you say? What do we think this passage is about? Yes, a glorious salvation, sort of painting us for, for us this picture of what is the lasting value of salvation? What, how does it last? What, what is it that we have in salvation? It's kind of the idea of the text. Let's read it again, and this time as you look at your paper, underline words that kind of give indicators of that theme, give us, that give you an idea of what this passage is really about. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So when, when we look at this passage, we think it has something to do with the lasting value of salvation. Sort of what, what do we have in salvation? This text wants to tell us something about that. But what words give us that impression? Born again. So we're talking about salvation. It's making it very explicit. We're not talking about just spiritual life. We're not just talking about any world religion. We're talking about those who've been born again in Christ. We're talking about salvation for believers. Yes. Mm. Yes. That's exactly right. So we've got these words that show longevity. We've got the... Um, these words about imperishable, undefiled, something that's kept. Their salvation is guarded. And then it's contrasted with this, these trials for a little while, right? We see that contrast. So these are going to help us build out our theme. So if I were to identify repeated words or themes, I would separate them into two categories. So hopefully you can see that some of this is marked in blue and some of this is marked in green. So when we talk about salvation, how do we know we're talking about salvation? Emily referenced this earlier. We're talking about being born again. There's these words of life. So he's not just saying those who are saved. He used specifically the phrase born again. Talk about words that are bursting with new life. Talking about spiritual birth, right? Being born again. What to a living hope from the resurrection. Those, Christ was dead. Now he's alive. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he's also talking about gold that perishes. So we talk about all of this new life, all, of this, all these things that are bursting with new life um, in Christ. We're talking about salvation, new life in Jesus Christ. And then we have, um, what, what is that salvation? We have a description. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. By God's power, it's being guarded. So the tested genuineness of your faith, and the, you obtain the outcome of your salvation. There is a sense of the things that last, the, the, a sense of the things that are eternal, a sense of the things that will never fade, that God is actually guarding himself, and he's talking about his salvation. This totally contrasts with their trials that are momentary, their trials that they're enduring for a little while. These are some of the repeated words or themes that help us understand what this passage is talking about. And if I were to summarize, if I was to look at all these words, if I was to mark up my page, and if any of these words I didn't understand, I would look them up in my dictionary, um, look them up in a thesaurus, use my cross-references. If I was to do all of this and then to summarize what this passage is about in one statement, this is what I would say. Peter is teaching the exiles that eternal salvation is worth more than temporary suffering. What is their salvation like? It's internal. It is everlasting. It, it's this inheritance that can't be defiled. And it's worth more. It's worth so much more than their temporary trials. Now, when we read this passage, <clears throat> if you were like me, I would start reading 1 Peter. I would start my Bible study 
And honestly, if I was looking at the page, if I was looking at the page of 1 Peter chapter 1, I would think that the text technically starts here, right? Because you've got the author and the audience sort of separated off, and then you've got a heading, and then you've got the real text, right? But this means almost nothing to us if we don't understand the audience's situation. It comes bursting into full color. It comes into 3D when we understand that they have been scattered, when we understand their specific trials, when we understand the burden of being kicked out of their home for their faith in Jesus Christ, when we understand that they um, are that God knew beforehand that this would happen, and they're wandering in a country that is not their own. We know it's modern-day Turkey. When we know that this is where they're at, and they're wondering, how could God possibly have foreknown this? How could God possibly have known this beforehand? And what does this have to do with my salvation? When we understand that about our audience and our author and bring it together with what this text is actually about, it comes into full color. God knew that they would be dispersed. God knew that they would be scattered throughout these other countries, throughout these other cities. And he knew that this would make them more like him. God knew that these trials in the grand scheme of things were temporary. They were short, but they had no weight compared to the eternal inheritance that they have in Jesus Christ. Should, these, should the dispersion, which we don't know a ton about this dispersion, Historically, we don't know as much about it, but it was a historical thing that happened, and it happened to Christians who were confessing the name of Jesus Christ. We can only imagine that it looks a lot like in our world, where there are people around the world, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are proclaiming the good news of the gospel against the wishes of those in authority in their countries, and they are faced very often with very serious penalties. They can proclaim the name of Christ, or they can leave, or be put in prison, they have a very clear option. They can, they, can, they can either denounce their faith in Jesus or they can suffer the consequences. And so I imagine, we don't know this factually, we don't know this historically, but I imagine that some of these believers are faced with that option. I can either denounce Christ. <clears throat> it's a new faith, so maybe I'm not going to stake my whole life on it. They could denounce Christ. They could give up their identity as a Christ follower, as a Christian. They could give that up, or they could leave. The persecution caused them to flee, to leave their homeland, to leave their country. And Peter is reminding them, it is all worth it. Whatever we give up for the sake of Christ is all worth it. Why? Because our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is what this text is about, and we see this as we understand what the text means, as we look at repeated words or phrases. These kind of help bring it into full color for us. The next thing that we want to do as we talk about um, what the text means is we want to understand a passage in its original biblical context. We want to understand where a certain text falls in the meta-narrative of Scripture. Um, when we talk about the meta-narrative of Scripture, we're talking about the, the big picture story, the big story that God is telling. Has anybody here read the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones to their kids or even for their personal use? Because I love it. Um, if we want to understand the meta-narrative, big picture of redemption, the great big story that God is telling throughout all 66 books of the Bible, 
Sally Lloyd-Jones does a great job of it in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It starts at the beginning and talks about how God made the world, and then right at the volley, he whispered, a Savior will come. And throughout all the Old Testament stories, it's basically Jesus said, or God saying, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And then you open to the New Testament, and it says he's here. <laughs> he's finally here. And so it's, the Jesus Storybook Bible does a great job of painting that big picture. What is this big story all about? Well, it's about the redemption of humanity through one Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when we look at any particular text, we want to understand where is this falling in the meta narrative of Scripture? Where is it falling in the big picture story of the entire Bible? Because if we were to read this passage and think that we were pre-Christ, before Christ died on the cross, it doesn't make any sense to us. It wouldn't make a bit of theological sense. It wouldn't be cohesive. And so we want to understand where are we falling in the meta narrative of Scripture? So we're going to look at that briefly. And because we're going to we're a little tight on time. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go over the meta narrative of scripture here, and then we're going to walk through it in more detail in our second workshop. We're going to kind of lop that onto the front end of that uh, because I want to make sure that we stay on schedule. But this is something we just don't want to rush past because it's really helpful as we consider um, where a text falls. So let me do an overview on, um, oh, hold on. going to make a decision on the fly. Okay, we are, we're going to do this. We're going to do genre. Um, we're going to talk about the genre of text, and then we're going to look at the meta narrative scripture at the beginning of the second workshop, okay? So we're going to talk about genre because I think that'll, be, that'll keep us closer to schedule, and then at the beginning of the second workshop, we'll talk about the meta narrative of scripture and where it falls. Um, so we're doing this a little bit out of order, but that's okay. We'll be able to swing it. So the text is written... The entire Bible is made up of different genres. It's made up of different um, types of writing. And so understanding any given type of writing is really helpful as we consider what it means in interpretations. We consider what does it say and what does it mean. It helps us understand um, what God is saying to us through his word as we understand the genre. And for example, it's really hard if we read Old Testament history. There's Old Testament history, and we're going to go through all the genres. But if we read, a, like, the book of Revelation as a history book, we'd be super confused, right? We'd be really thrown off about when did a dragon carry what pregnant woman where? We'd be very confused if we read that as a historical book, right? Or we'd be confused if we read the Gospels like we read poetry in the Old Testament. It's sort of like picking up your favorite, um, like, I love Emily Dickinson. So if I pick up Emily Dickinson in my car manual and got them confused in genre, like, I'm just not going to open my car manual and be, like, wax poetical about... You know, I don't know anything about cars, so I can't even make up something that would be in a car manual. This is how hopeless I am when it comes to vehicles. Um, but if we confuse genre, we get really thrown off. It can be really confusing. It can really help us in interpretation as we understand the different genres that the text is written in. So there are seven different kinds of, there are seven different genres in the text. And I think you should have a bulleted numbered list there to write them. I'm going to run through these. Um, and then we'll take a look at First Peter and identify what type of writing that is. The first type, starting in the Old Testament, is law or covenant writing. The genre of law or covenant. This is indicated by legal language. It's written somewhat like a contract or like a leasing agreement or like a business contract. You see, if this, then this. It's written between two parties. In the Old Testament, we come into the book of Deuteronomy and God says, if... Da, 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 then, da, da, da. he says, if my people who are called by my name will pray 
then I will do this. It's promises that are contingent with if then statements. It's got this legal language, this contractual language to indicate that it is law or covenant in genre. Then we have Old Testament narratives or historical writing. Old Testament narrative or historical writing. This is a good portion of the Old Testament. We have books that burst onto the scene that say, in the year that King Hezekiah died, and what it's trying to do for us is tell us this really happened, and if you want to know that, look at these other historical things that were happening at the same time, and you'll see that they reference it as well. They're trying to camp it at a certain date and time and in a certain nation with certain real characters who really lived and walked this earth. So historical narrative, historical writing is usually indicated by, in the first few verses, it's going to list people and places and events to tell you when and what this is happening, but their big message is this all really happened. This is all really, really true. So we have law, covenant, Old Testament narratives, or historical writing, and then we have prophecy. And prophecy is, can be very different throughout the Old and New Testament. We have very different kinds of content in prophetic books, but the main way to identify it is that the prophet himself is identified. So we see language like the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Isaiah. We even have in the book of Jonah, interestingly, where it says the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jonah. And that's sort of an anti-hero story, right? So Jeremiah does exactly what God says, and Isaiah does exactly what God says, and Jonah does exactly the opposite. But we have these indicators in the text that say, the word of the Lord came to the prophet so-and-so. And And that's going to tell us that what is to come is prophetical writing. And it's usually predicting lots of things that will happen, but namely, it's pointing us all to Christ. Throughout the Old Testament specifically, we see the Old Testament um, prophets are saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And then in New Testament, we have um, this second genre we'll look at in a second um, that is, it can be apocalyptic in nature, but in the prophetic book of Revelation, this message is the same. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The prophets are declaring the same thing, and they all point to the person of Jesus Christ. So then we have number four, poetry or songs. Poetry or songs, this is one of my favorite. And it's one of the easiest to identify, quite honestly. When you open to the book of Psalms, it's going to look like a poem. It's broken down by stanzas. It looks like a poem in the way that it's written. Unlike Luke, the book of Luke, is gonna, the text is going to span your entire page, but you turn to Psalms, it's going to be these skinny little columns broken down by stanza. And a lot of times the headings will tell you, this is a song David wrote when he was hiding in the caves at Asherah, or, you know, whatever it is. It's meant to be played with the lute and the harp. Isn't it nice that they include these little, these little instructions of who's supposed to play this? When's it supposed to be played? But poetry or songs of these um, are really easily identified by the way that they're in, printed for us in our Bible. And they use really figurative language. They paint for us beautiful word pictures like we saw in Psalm 1 of the tree. So we have law, covenant, Old Testament narratives, prophecy, poetry. And then we have wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. This is pithy, short phrases that teach us what it looks like to live in wisdom. What does the life of a person who follows God, what is it going to look like? Practically, what do I do? And the wisdom literature throughout the Old Testament has these pithy little sayings these little memorable quips. Um, If you're familiar with Chinese proverbs, we're going to see a lot of those in the book of Proverbs. 
The book of Proverbs is wisdom literature, and it's basically giving us good advice on how to live in wisdom, and it's short, memorable statements. I usually ask myself, is this something I would want to pin? Like, is it kind of memorable and quippy that I would want to, like, pin it on Pinterest? And that is a good indication that it's wisdom literature. It's these short little statements that are punchy, and they remind us what it looks like to live a wise and righteous life. Um, In the book of Proverbs, this is a primary example of wisdom literature, we actually see personified lady wisdom. The book is all about giving good advice, and then you know, the writer of the book of Proverbs says, Lady Wisdom is crying out and saying, go home, you fool. Go home, you son. Don't turn aside to that way. It's literally full of the voice of wisdom. So wisdom literature, and next we have New Testament narratives or the gospel. As we break into the New Testament, we see, just like we see in the Old Testament narratives, we see these historic books that document us the life of Jesus. They tell us all about what he really did historically. Where did Jesus really go historically? What did he really do? And who did he really heal? And what did he really teach historically? The Gospels tell us all about Jesus' life, ministry, and death. And the Gospels are the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So those are hallmarks. Those are the only Gospels that we have in the New Testament. And the authors want to tell you specifically that it's historical because they say things like, and then they went to this place. Just like in Old Testament, they say, in the year King Uzziah died, they're saying, and then they went on from Galilee to this place, and it was this feast, and they're trying to camp it for you in a historic setting so that you know that this really happened. So there's the New Testament narratives or the Gospels. And then lastly, we have letters. We have the epistolary writings, which is sort of the more academic term for it, but the epistles, they are letters from apostles to the churches that are in the very first churches of the early church. As the good news of the gospel is spreading, Jesus has ascended into heaven and the gospel goes forth and people come to know him. And this new faith, this new old faith, right? Because Jesus didn't come to start a new faith, but he was fulfilling the old faith of the Old Testament, These people that are coming to know Christ for the first time, as they're growing in their faith, they're going, okay, I know about Jesus, I know about the resurrection, and I know about some of these other things, but like, what now? Like, what do we do? How do we live out this new life in Christ? What do I do now? And so the epistolary writings or the letters teach us, and they teach the original hearers what it looks like to work out this faith and to live in it day to day. Most of these letters are written by Paul, Um, I loved whoever said last night that they would want to talk to Paul because I would have lots of questions for him as well. Um, But these letters are written after Christ's death, and they're written by those who bore witness to new Christians about what it looked like to live in Christ. And usually they're identified as letters by saying, hey, I'm Paul, and I'm writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. It's pretty simple. It's pretty easy to identify. But this floods the New Testament. Um, About 60% of our New Testament books are letters. Um, And so as we look at all these different genres, we have law and covenant, we have Old Testament narratives, we have prophecy, poetry, wisdom, literature, New Testament narratives or the Gospels, and letters. And as we look at um, 1 Peter, whoops, as we look at 1 Peter here, what do we see is, if you look at your whole text, look at your printout, what what genre does this fit into? A letter. It's very clear to us, this book is all about telling us 
hey, this is how you practically live out this new life in Christ. This is not telling us in poetical form. So when we come across an illustration, we know it's an illustration and not poetry that's helpful to us. It might give us wisdom. It might give us practical advice, but it's not wisdom literature. It's also not prophetic. So when he says, you know, you're going to go and do these things, it's not prophetic. It's not a promise from God. But it's advice. It's information. It's helpful working out our salvation. How do we live new life in Christ? This is our instruction on how to do that. So the book of 1 Peter is a letter, and we're going to look more at what this um, means for us as we go into our second workshop. We're going to lop off um, the meta narrative. We'll do that in our second um, workshop. But for now, let me pray for us. And I think we're taking a bathroom break next, a five-minute break. I need some sort of visual cue from one person that I'm supposed to dismiss people. No? Icebreaker after this. I'm so glad. I was looking in the wrong place. I almost dismissed y'all. Can you imagine? Oh, they'd be so mad at me. Okay. <laughs> Ladies, let's pray really quick, and then we'll do an icebreaker, okay? Okay.